Welcome into the Emerging Cricket Podcast, and this week we've got a special edition of a preview episode for the World Cup, and of course the Netherlands being the emerging team in the World Cup. So just as the tournament is getting underway, we've got Rod Lyle, EC's Netherlands correspondent, to talk all things Dutch cricket and uh, you know their chances in the tournament. Rod, welcome to the show. Hi Nick. Hello everyone. Good to be here again. Yes, we have well, we have nine ODI matches against top-level opposition for the Netherlands uh, in you know a month and a half, which is uh, about as much as they're going to be seeing for the next decade or so, based on the current Future Tours program. But you know, we, we we can get to that. But yes, looking at the schedule, obviously the round robin format means that they play all the teams. Interestingly, they're playing India last. I'm sure that has nothing to do with giving India a chance at, at, you know, fixing their net run rate if, if they need to. But um, we can start by, I think we'll start by looking at the preparation leading into the tournament because, you know, we've seen a lot of the other teams playing a whole bunch of ODI cricket. You know, Australia, India played a series, uh, Bangladesh played against Sri Lanka. But unfortunately for the Dutch, they didn't get any ODIs at all. So they just, <laughs> they had a couple of games against Karnataka, you know, the, the Indian state team, uh, one game was pretty close and the other game was uh, a bit of a rout. We, we can get into that. But yeah, so unfortunately, they didn't have the same level of preparation as some of the other teams. They travelled to India, I believe. Maybe you can give a bit more information about that. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks early, uh, we saw a fun fun little uh, social media story with their net bowlers. But yeah, the preparation, I think, is not as good as it could have been. Yeah, I think it. I think it's as good as it could have been, practically speaking, given the way the dice are loaded against an associate qualifier, which in this case happens to be the Netherlands. Yeah, good point. But it, I think they've. I think they've done pretty well. I think Ryan Cook and and Roland Lefebvre have done very well in terms of giving the players experience in camps in India, and then the two games that they managed against Karnataka. But to contrast that with what all the full members have been able to do, just it's further evidence of the fact that the associates are systematically discriminated against and that the playing field is not level. But then what else is new? We already knew that. Yeah, it, it is unfortunate. Um, but yeah, we, we saw some some nice little uh, storylines coming out. The delivery driver who, you know, <laughs> as, as Bert has pointed out, now they have two delivery drivers uh, bowling in the nets for them, uh, if you include Paul Van Makeren. Um So, you know, so they, they did some stuff on social media as well. So I, I think, you know, they've been trying, but yeah, it's, it, it is... Not very helpful that when yeah you know you get two games against Karnataka and then you come up against Mitchell Stark bowling Yorkers at 150 k's an hour. No, it's ludicrous. And if in a well organised system, the international authorities would say this is great for cricket. Here is one of the leading associates which has not only qualified for the World T20 next year in the West Indies and and the United States by beating Zimbabwe and South Africa in their last two games, but have now qualified for the 50-over World Cup as well. We need to have everything in place in order to ensure that they get plenty of match practice in the months between the end of the qualification at the end of June and the start of the tournament at the beginning of October. Um, That's not rocket science. Anybody if they had any genuine interest in ensuring that the competition uh, is as even and fair as possible, would have thought that through before the qualifiers. But of course, nobody, uh, 
it was not intended that anybody other than full members should make it through. So the Dutch have upset the apple cart by playing so well and, and qualifying and taking the opportunity. And the ICC is simply incapable, it seems, of responding positively to that and ensuring that um, everybody gets a fair crack of the whip. Even the fact that the Dutch have eight day-night matches in their program. I think I don't think anybody else has eight day-night matches in their schedule. I haven't actually checked that out completely. But the fact is that the team with the least experience of playing day-night ODIs happens to be the Netherlands, and they happen to get eight out of their nine games organised as day-night matches. Yeah, OK, so maybe the Wallow effect is involved there, but that looks like another loading of the dice to me. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's unfortunate especially in terms of the preparation, because you know, we think back to, for example, the global qualifier in uh, in 2019, where the Netherlands, they won the whole thing. They came in hot with, with a huge amount of prep. They, they played, I think it was 10 T20 matches or, or something along those lines before the qualifiers started, and they had a, a really good tournament. Uh, and then you can trust that to 2021, when you know they, they played in Oman, they got uh, bundled out in the group stages because they'd had barely any prep. Uh, they hadn't organised any matches. They had to sort of organise their own scratch game against the New Zealanders uh, because you know a couple of the the Dutch guys knew a couple of the New Zealanders and they were you know they were kind enough to sort of play an extra warm up game. You know, contrasting those two tournaments and and the Dutch fortunes in the two of them, it's hard to think that they'll be coming into this World Cup in the best of form when you know they're, they're barely playing any matches first. Um, so yeah, I think it, there's a fundamental difference though because the that 2019-2021 experience, I think, was mainly attributable to factors internal to the KNCB. And I don't want to get onto that bandwagon again. <laughs> that's that's a whole other podcast, isn't it? <laughs> it's a whole other podcast. But I, I don't think you can really hold the ICC responsible for that under-preparation. I think everything has been done by... Uh, the KNCB this time to try to get as effective a preparation as possible, but there's just no cooperation from the other from the other full members or from the ICC who are playing their own game, and it's not the game that the Dutch are ha- having to try to play. Well, and I mean, you would imagine, as we keep saying, the ICC's product is international cricket. You would think, for their own self-interest, they'd want the best possible tournament to happen and you know the most exciting games and for all the teams to be competitive and generating interest in the viewership so it, it seems like an own goal if anything you would think unless of course your real game is to say well look nine nine walkovers not competitive forget about the associate mm. but then that would be a conspiracy theory and we mustn't <laughs> indulge in conspiracy <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I tend to, once again, we, we're back to the recurring theme of the ICC and the fact that it's two institutions shoved into one where you have the, the development side, which very much would like the Netherlands to be competitive. And then you have the sort of top decision-making side, which is dominated by full member interests. So that's always that's always the fundamental tension. And even within the full members, a specific group of full member interests. Well, yeah, there's yeah, circles within circles, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, I think all of that, I don't think it's going too far to say that the dice are loaded. I think if the Dutch come out of the entire tournament with a series of decent performances and possibly even 
a win somewhere along the line. I think that will be remarkable. I think if they win more than one or two games, that would be absolutely sensational, given everything we've been talking about, plus the fact that they are taking on full-time cricketers. Every yeah. every team is the is every other team is a selection of the best full-time cricketers money can buy. And the Dutch have some full-timers, county players, one or two who between the Southern Hemisphere and um, Dutch cricket are effectively full-timers, but a group of part-timers as well. It would it will be a great experience for them. And one which is built on the the gains they made during the late lamented Super League and the qualifier, uh, where they punched above their weight. So, yeah, we've just got to hope that they are able to carry that through and put up some decent performances, preferably getting their revenge against a Mitchell Stark who does the hat-trick against them. Mm. Well, just on that, I guess we can talk about their sort of on-field results with, with the performances. Their first match against Karnataka... You know, the, the entire top order got completely blasted away. And then uh, Paul Van Makeren and, and I believe Ryan Klein had a bit of a fight back towards the end, uh, you know, hit, hitting lustily. But uh, yeah, so that was pretty catastrophic. Uh, but, you know, then, then the top order clicked in the next game against Karnataka. They, they put up 297 and they got pretty close to defending it. I, I think Karnataka got over the line by two wickets, maybe. So, you know, even in that time, they, they showed some improvement. Um, and then, yeah, the warm-up game against Stark, rain-reduced match. If this is the first time you're coming up against Mitchell Stark, it's sort of hard to really blame them. But at the same time, you know, you, you would think that they have generally faced fast Yorkers before. So I, I'm not sure if it was, uh, you know, just feeling a bit overwhelmed or, or if if it generally was, you know, too much of a step up or I don't know what, but that that is definitely a bad sign. Yeah, we'll know more, I think, for sure, in a week or two. I think one critical point from my perspective is that I think a key issue is, from a development point of view, how this massive challenge that the Dutch are facing can be capitalised on in order to promote cricket in the Netherlands, which is a whole other podcast as well. But the amount of coverage that has been given to the two games against Karnataka, uh, for example, on the KNT website, is zero. So that's another. it's another question. But how you turn these challenges to best advantage inside the country, obviously you want the team to perform well. It's not going to help if the team keeps failing and losing badly. But if they do manage to put up decent performances, one of the challenges for the KNCB and for Dutch cricket is how that can be promoted in order to make people in the Netherlands aware of the existence of the game, which is, you know, an ongoing problem. Yeah, that is definitely another problem. Um, Although I noticed uh, an interesting cricket podcast coming out in Dutch cricketing sphere with uh, Tim Delader, Baz's father, and Tom der Holte and Victor van Kolveig, uh, who are all familiar names in the Dutch cricket scene. They've had the first episode come out. Uh, it's called Over Cricket Gesproken. So if, if you're a Dutch speaker who's interested in cricket, that's out there. But um, yeah, unfortunately, the KNCB probably could be doing more to promote the game at home. But I don't know. I mean, there's been a few of these fairly puzzling, for example, the Dutch Grand Prix had Scott Edwards there with the World Cup trophy to promote, you know, Dutch cricket and and their appearance at the World Cup. But the first we heard about it was 
Bertus de Jong a few days after it happened being a bit puzzled. So it just seems like, you know, some people are doing some things, but there's just no kind of communication or, or coherence between the efforts. And so it all gets a bit lost. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that I think that's all true. And I think that is a subject to which we shall have to return. But I think it probably is slightly off topic for what's about to happen. Yes. So I guess we can we can get into the meat of the the, the topic here. And, um, you know, looking at the team list, we've got some, I guess, a couple of slightly surprising names and, and some that are not very surprising. So starting off with the captain and wicketkeeper Scott Edwards, who's uh, I mean, we can maybe talk about that, but he's he's really settled into the role as skipper, and and it, you know the Scott Edwards era seems to have been going on for years and years when he he only took over from Pete Zeller last year, and, and yeah, he's he's really settled into that role, which has been very impressive. Um, and yeah, going going through the rest of the list, there's Colin Ackerman, Cherise Ahmed, Wesley Bracey, Bastelader, Ian Dutt, Sabran Engelbrecht, uh, Ryan Klein, Teja Nidmanuru, Max O'Dowd. Vikramjit Singh, Logan Van Bake, Paul Van Makeren, Rolla van der Merwe, and Saqib Zulfikar. Uh, in addition, Noah Cruz and Kyle Klein, Ryan's brother, are traveling reserves. So, yeah, lo- looking at that squad, uh, a-, a couple of things jump out at me, which is they're missing a couple of bowlers. Uh, you know, Tim van der Huchten and Fred Klaassen jump out as-, as names that probably could have been there. But other than that, probably about as close to full strength as you could reasonably expect for a Dutch team. I maybe would have brought an extra spinner just looking, you know, you're playing nine games in India and Ruloff van der Merwe's back <laughs> is uh, fragile at the best of times. But, you know, other than that, I think it's it's pretty solid and there's some, some problems for the selectors in a good way, you know, which, which of the quality batters do you leave out? So it's a good side as you say it'll be coming up against uh full-time professionals and and you know guys who play cricket year in year out <laughs> all year round uh which is going to be a step up but on the other hand we we have seen them improve significantly throughout the super league campaign bez is uh <laughs> bez is pretty hyped up about about this dutch team uh, I, I don't know if they'll win more than two games but i think Two games is a realistic target for them. Baz Delater reckons they're targeting the semi-finals, so if that's the attitude, then definitely you know good for them. Yeah, that's what that's what Ryan Cook says as well. I mean, he says any sporting team goes into a tournament expecting to reach the next day or aiming to reach the next stage, and in yeah. this case, the next stage is the semi-finals. So yeah, and you need to win five games, probably minimum, maybe six. In order to in order think, to get into the semi-finals, I believe technically it's possible to get into the semi-finals with three victories. But yeah, well, I mean, this is a problem with the group format. But you know, again, that's a different topic. <laughs> yeah, uh, that would be that would be remarkable if everybody wound up on three wins. <laughs> um, no, I I don't think that's going to happen. As far as the squad is concerned, for me, the big gap is the loss of Fred Glasser, who's injured or not fully fit. He brings a another dimension to the attack being a left armor he um has proven success against top sides and is just a very very good bowler and a greatly improved bowler so yeah he is a huge a huge miss there were various stories about whether Tim van der Kuchten was available or not um he's still bowling well for Glamorgan in the end He's not in the squad, which I think is a shame. But there is some quality pace there. They even, I mean, it's interesting that they were even able to 
leave Brandon Glover out, who's been, if not a first choice, at least close to a first choice when everybody's available over the last two or three years. So Ryan Klein got the nod ahead of him. It's a decent pace attack, I think. How well it will go against absolutely top-ranked top sixes is a question that, again, we will know we will know something of an answer to reasonably soon, I think. I think one of the, the good things about the squad is that the conditions will vary. I mean, given the range of venues at which they're playing, we know that not all Indian pitches are the same and that there will be some which are more pace-friendly and some which are more spin-friendly. They may feel the need to play an extra batter in, in some games as well. So I can see kind of three potential first 11s, if you like, one with an extra pace bowler, one with an extra spinner, and one with an extra batter. And I think which one plays on any given day will depend on fitness issues, obviously, as well as the the conditions that they're going to be playing in. And of course, Ryan Cook has direct experience having been involved in the IPL. So he will be able to apply that knowledge to team selection on a match-by-match basis. So I think they've got, I mean, if you, yeah, you said maybe maybe take an extra spinner. You've got Aryan Dutt, off-spinner, who has done very well against full member sides. Surprisingly, somehow. I, I You know, you watch him bowl, you think he shouldn't be taking wickets, but he, somehow he does. <laughs> he does. And he's, he's, he's accurate, he's dependable, bowls to his field. You've got the enigma that is Shiriz Ahmed, who gets wickets. And bowls, he is essentially a googly bowler and has the occasional ball that goes through. He's not a conventional leg spinner. You've got Colin Ackerman as well as Rulof von der Merwe. So there's a reasonable a reasonable range of spin bowling available. And how many spinners will play in any given game, I think, will obviously depend on local conditions. The spinner I'm most keen to see is Shrews Ahmed and see how he goes, uh, especially if they play him in spin-friendly conditions, because he's he's an exciting... He's a wicket-taking bowler, as you say. Uh, I might have mentioned this before, but Burtis has sort of poured cold water on my excitement, <laughs> basically saying that once people work out he doesn't have a leg break, uh, he'll be pretty hittable. But I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been assured that he's working on his leg break at least. So, you know, that's something. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really enjoy watching Ahmed bowl. Yeah, I think it could go either way. He could suffer in the way that Philippe Boisevin suffered when England came to the Netherlands last year. If they do figure him out, then he could be in for some punishment. On the other hand, yeah, he does take wickets. He got a five for against Zimbabwe, who, of course, are not in the World Cup uh, earlier this year. Yeah, he he is a very exciting prospect. And I hope it works out for him because leg spinners are always good to watch. No, let me adjust that. Wrist spinners are always good to watch. Yes, definitely, definitely. And I guess one other name that has been floated is uh, is Daniel Dorham, who's back from, I don't know, would you call it exile or uh, the wilderness? Or, you know, he, he was he was in the Caribbean for a while. Uh, he's, he's come back to the Netherlands, played in the top class, uh, had a very good season this year. Uh, maybe a bit of a surprise he wasn't in the team. I think he brings a lot of quality with the ball and, you know, having having a guy with his you know, left arm, very tall, like uses the angles very effectively and, and sort of flights it cleverly. You know, that kind of bowler can be very useful, uh, especially in conditions that are maybe, you know, he, he's not relying on the pitch to produce magic. He's relying on his own kind of variations and, and sense for the game. Yeah, I agree completely. He'd have been in my side. I thought he bowled okay. I know that there are 
diverse opinions about how reliable the top classer is as a guide to anything. But he really <laughs> bowled really well for Hasese at the end of the season. I mean, he was a late replacement for Tim Pringle, who, of course, is also somebody who, had he been match fit, might well have made the side, another left-arm spinner. He had to call off um, because of fitness issues at the beginning of the season, and HCC brought Daniel Doram in as his replacement, and he did extremely well. He does have the additional height and bounce as a result of that. Uh, he turns the ball. He's got great control. Yeah, I would have I, I would have picked him certainly in my squad, though I'm less clear about who I would have left out. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh on, on poor old Ruler, but I think if you're bringing Ruler fandom over with his history of injuries, you want some kind of cover and Doram fulfills a similar role. Obviously, Ruloff is a much better bat, but, you know, Doram, that left arm spin role, keeping things tight, that's Ruler, that's, you know, that that's Fandemov's job. So, yeah, if if nothing else, just bring him as uh, insurance for Ruloff Fandemov's back. Having seen Ruloff struggle in Australia in the T20, I was initially very doubtful whether he'd make the cut. And I think there is a big question mark about how well he will stand up to the demands of this tournament, which is undoubtedly, as going back to where you started, undoubtedly the most demanding competition that Dutch cricket has ever confronted by a distance. Every other World Cup they've played in, they've had fewer games and they have always included at least, well, they've included one against another associate. To be the only associate in a 10-team World Cup with nine full members and to have to play all of them in enormously varying conditions over a period of a month is a huge, huge ask. And yeah, you've got to expect that if anybody's got doubtful fitness, then then it's going to find them out. Well, just on that, um, teams can fly in injury replacements. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess in that case, we might be seeing Dorham or Tim Pringle for that matter. But still, yeah, I I would love to see Ruloff play all nine games and and you know bowl his ten overs reliably. But yeah, I, I don't know. He's He's a, you know, he's a wholehearted performer and, and we all love that about, you know, watching Vandermeer play is he, he doesn't hold back, but... I mean, what they say is he's an important factor in the dressing room as well. Oh, definitely. I believe that. And I, I think that's, I mean, that's the kind of thing that coaches think about as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad he's there. I hope it works for him. He's somebody who could turn games if everything goes in his favour. And it's interesting. I mean, another player with a similar background who is the only newcomer in the squad uh, is, as you mentioned, Sebrand Engelbrecht, who's led Orberg to the top class of title this year, um, made a big hundred at a crucial moment towards the end of the season and has a lot of first class experience in South Africa. So whether he slots into the um, the middle order and at whose expense is Again, as you said, um, an, an interesting conundrum because, I mean, they've got Baresi, they've got Nida Manuru, the only player to make 200s for the Netherlands over the last couple of years. They've got Buster Leder. It's going to be a tough call to decide who who bats three, four, five, six, maybe seven with Edwards at eight. I mean, you talked about the role of, of Scott Edwards. It's Again, it's a huge ask to be captain, wicketkeeper, and often the key middle order batter. Uh, I mean, the number of times he has made runs when other people haven't. He's had a tremendous 18 months with the bat, and it doesn't seem as if the cares of captaincy have undermined that. 
I think there was a question to some extent in the Pakistan series whether maybe the captaincy might have been affecting his wicket-keeping a bit. But he's kept very well since then. So, yeah, he's emerged as uh, a very good captain in the Peter Boren, Peter Saylor, Scott Edwards uh, series if you like. Yeah, I think he's a very impressive captain. Uh, His batting, as you say, averaging above 40 at a strike rate of 92 in the last couple of years of ODIs, mostly against very strong opposition. So the only thing missing on that resume as a batter, I guess, is is a century. Uh, He he seems to score tons of 50s, but then (laughs) can't quite go on with them. Or comes in so late that he runs out of partners or overs in the 70s. That's true. That's fair. But Although, yeah, I mean, and I think back to that partnership against the West Indies with him and Tejan Nidmanuru, where they just ran the West Indies ragged. And, you know, he, he was leading by example there and he'd already kept for 50 overs and he was out there running twos all day. And um, so, yeah, he's, he's in that uh, Boren, Zayla, you know, leading from the front, you know, wholehearted performer kind of mould. And yeah, his wicket-keeping is good. I really like his captaincy from a tactical perspective. I think he's always trying something new. He's not... He's not afraid to mix it up. He he rotates his bowlers effectively. He can be a bit sort of experimental with his field settings if he, you know, he, he, when you're a wicketkeeper, you notice things about batters and, you know, even subtle things about the way they, you know, line up to the bowler or, or you know, the way they're moving around their crease or, or what have you, you know, <laughs> he'll, he'll move a guy five meters one way or the other. And, and you know, he, he's, he's always proactive. And I always appreciate that in a captain because, you know, especially coming up against higher ranked opponents, you know, you need to be trying stuff. You can't just let the game drift and, and be reactive. You, you need to try and uh, try and control the match. So I think Edwards is the man for the job in, in terms of uh, leadership. And yeah, his, his batting in the middle order is going to be very important as well. I, I, just on that middle order, yeah, you, you mentioned Engelbrecht, uh, Baresi, just talked about Nidmanuru and, and his amazing century against the West Indies. Who do you leave out? Because you would think that Vic, Vikram Singh and... Max O'Dowd are nailed on to open. So then does that mean Baresi, who's traditionally been an opener, maybe he comes in at three? He's one of your best players of spin. But then, yeah, so you're not leaving out Colin Ackerman. And then there's Bastilator, who also is impossible to leave out. Scott Edwards at six. You know, Engelbrecht at seven or vice versa. Nidamanuru gets dropped. That'd be harsh after the, the two years he's had. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky question for <laughs> for for uh, for Ryan Cook there. Yeah. Absolutely. And it helps, I think, probably that there are two significant all-rounders, maybe two and a half, if you include Ackerman, who does bowl significant numbers of overs on occasion. But you've got you've got Deleda and and you've got Van Beek, uh, both of whom are significant all-rounders in the side. And that gives you that gives you more options. And of course, Edwards as a as a wicketkeeper is is a kind of all-rounder as well. So that I think simplifies some of the choices, but it's it is not going to be straightforward. We've seen Baresi play a couple of really important knocks in the qualifier. I mean, there were some. I think maybe there were a few reservations when he came back against Pakistan and struggled against pace. But he's made runs since then. And yeah, I mean, given that they can't all play, or probably in most cases won't all play, that's going to be a tough choice. That's going to be a tough choice. Yeah, I mean, he was bullying the Sri Lankan spin attack, which had dominated the qualifiers so far. And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that dismissal turned the game. Oh, yes. Brain dead run out. Love to see those, don't you? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that, 
at the um, the press conference, which was held with um, Ryan Cook and and Scott Edwards on the top class of grand final day, one of the things they both stressed, but particularly Scott, was we have to take our opportunities against these guys. You have to maximise every opportunity you get. You can't afford to let one go. So that means holding your catches. It means not falling for runouts. It means getting every run out you can when they're batting, uh, not bowling both sides of the way. I mean, all the kind of obvious things, but but they are in the position of having to perform at 110% of capacity all the time. And then you've got to hope that the other team manages 70%. Yeah, and, and that's always the challenge for an associate coming up against a full member or you know higher-ranked opposition in general because, and this is something I, I've written about in the past, just lower-ranked teams beating higher-ranked teams is pretty uncommon in cricket. And, and that goes for full members against full members. Once you get past sort of three ranking differences, upsets are very, very uncommon, regardless of membership status. So the odds are stacked against the Netherlands because you know, they are so far down that ranking totem pole. And, you know, I, I think, again, this is, I mean, how many times have we said it, but this is the biggest disappointment of the cancelling of the Super League, is the fact that you saw how much the Netherlands improved in that time of, of just having exposure against good teams on a regular basis. And you saw how much difference it has made for their cricket. You know, I would, I strongly suspect they wouldn't be here. They wouldn't be at the World Cup if they hadn't had that experience, even though they lost most of their games. If they hadn't had that experience against good teams, they would not be here. So, yeah, and it just goes to show how important, you know, it's nice, obviously, to be at a tournament once every four years. But what goes on between that in in the intervening cycle, that's where the real work goes in, in terms of developing a cricket team. And yeah, we've seen that with the Netherlands. And, and that's why I think they're a chance to win a, at least a couple of games. But yeah, it, it, it is disappointing that we won't be able to see them build on that. I would actually go back a little further than that and pay tribute to Ryan Campbell as well as to Ryan Cook, yeah. because both of them have been instrumental in creating this side. And although, I mean, the overlap with the side that Peter Drinnen created is now small, I think the team culture probably goes back as far as Drinnen. Three very good coaches who've in, who introduced a level of, of professionalism, each building on the work of the one before. So that coupled with the opportunities which the Super League gave first Campbell side and then and that and then that side inherited by Cook has you know it's it's I think enormously important that the quali- that quality of coaching has been available in order to help the guys learn the lessons that they have learned. And we haven't really talked about yeah. the significance of Vikram Singh and, and Max O'Dowd only in terms of them denying an opening spot to to Wes Barese, who I think probably is at his best at three or four. But Vikram Singh's emergence as a stroke-playing left-handed opening bat alongside Max O'Dowd as a stroke-playing right-hand uh, opening bat, that was one of the big significant developments of the of the 2022 two season those home series against the West Indies England and Pakistan and they've carried it on since then in Zimbabwe and South Africa and in the qualifier and if they can get a good start against sides in the World Cup that I mean like a really good start 
that takes some of the pressure off the middle order because one of the problems that the Dutch have historically had is making enough runs after the power play. And that's where Scott Edwards' role, I think, in the lower middle, the lower top order mm. has been so significant because he Definitely. has scored runs not only at a good average, but also at a, at a good clip, often in circumstances which were not entirely positive. So it's, I think it's vital that, that as often as possible, uh, O'Dowd and, and Singh get the Dutch off to a good start. And they've undoubtedly got the ability to do that. Yeah, and, and it makes a big difference on the bowling side of things because, you know, too often the, the bowling is quite good, but they just they don't have enough runs to play with and, and there's not much you can do when you're defending 150 or whatever. So that doesn't help. Uh, you're just on the bowling, though. <laughs> Ryan Klein coming in as, as the seam option, I mean, obviously, I think we would both agree it's a bit of a downgrade from Fred Clarsen. You know, no disrespect to Ryan Klein, but Klein is interesting in the sense that he's come into the team entirely through the top classer, and he's an example of the effort that has gone into the top classer to provide a, a good production of talent that, that can be relied on when they do get called up to the national team. And, you know, players like Vikram Singh, who came through the top class. Obviously, he's an amazing talent. You know, or, or, or for example, Daniel Dorham, who we've just been talking about. You know, guys who've come through the local system in the Netherlands, coming into the national team and not being overawed and, and not being uh, the weak link. You know, Ryan Klein had a very good top class of series. And in the limited opportunities he's had playing for the Netherlands, he, he hasn't looked out of place. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think there is a significant difference in the sense that Ryan Klein played first-class cricket and List A cricket for Western Province before he came to the Netherlands. That's fair. He's a Dutch passport holder, but he's is a product of the South African system, uh, of the Western province system. And Daniel Dorham is an interesting case because he comes from St. Martin, which is a, a Dutch dependency in the Caribbean. So he's doubly, I mean, he's doubly qualified for the West Indies and for the Netherlands. Like Casey Carty. Yeah, who played against the Netherlands. In his first match too. Yeah. I mean, Daniel Dorham came to the Netherlands along with another guy at 15, I think, and played a season for VOC. And then he went off and played academy cricket in England before going back to the West Indies and playing for St. Martin and for, I think, the Leeward Islands in West Indies domestic cricket and had kind of dropped off the radar of Dutch cricket until HCC pulled him back. So in that sense, I mean, somebody like... Vikram Singh and Aryan Dutt, both of whom have roots in India, but are essentially products of Dutch domestic cricket, are in a different category. Likewise, Cherise, who is born in Amsterdam, uh, although his brother Musa was, I think, born in Pakistan. But both of them have cultural roots in Pakistan. But what we're beginning to get now is a generation of players with immigrant backgrounds, but born in the Netherlands, learning their cricket in the Netherlands, and indeed coming through the Dutch system. I mean, the other the other caveat is that uh, alongside the the top classer, there is nominally an, a regional competition in the Netherlands. It's called the Pro Series, the Fair Tree Pro Series. It's never really played the part it ought to play, and never been given the serious attention that it really ought to have. That's another whole issue which we could devote a podcast to sometime. But this year, Ryan Cook insisted that if you wanted to go to the World Cup, or if indeed if you wanted to go to the qualifier, then you needed to be available for the Pro Series. And they played two games 
before the qualifier in May, and then two or one game because one was rained off. Maybe two games after the after the qualifier, the last of them on the 23rd of August. And so those were games when players like Ryan Klein got their opportunity to strut their stuff. And I think Ryan Cook paid more attention probably to those games than he did to the to the top classer. And how that pro series can be turned, I mean, at the moment, it's only a two-team competition. And I think it, I think a a minimum is that it needs to be a three-team competition, seriously regional and with its own identity in which the best players play against each other uh, in a much more demanding competition than the top classer, apart from the presence, of course, of professionals, overseas players in the top classer. It's, it's more competitive if you have two or three teams of contenders for the national side playing against each other yeah that's a fair summary of the of the situation i would say i, I think i guess looking to ireland you can see how much of a problem it is trying to build up a, a domestic infrastructure that is both credible in terms of talent production but also uh, sustainable in a financial sense and that's always going to be a, a, a challenge for the KNCB in in terms of you know just having the money to run a tournament like that and it's unfortunate the the pro series is interesting it descends from the north sea pro series which was played with Scotland and you know, there were two Scottish teams and two Dutch teams. And I think that was a really good system because it allowed you know two associate countries to sort of ha- put together two high quality teams of, of national team hopefuls and you know play off against each other. And, and it, it was kind of a, a pooling of resources. And originally it was paid for using TAP funding, the targeted assistance program that the, that the ICC ran a few years back. But then obviously once that money dried up and was redirected into the pockets of the four members. Uh, it, it wasn't really sustainable for either board to run it uh, in its original form. I don't know if it continues in some way in Scotland, but in the Netherlands, certainly the way it, it runs is more as a kind of interest squad selection kind of thing, which is, yeah, it, it's unfortunate because I think there was a lot of potential for Scotland and Netherlands to help each other out with that previous system. Absolutely. And- I was actually on the board of the KNCB when we set up the North Sea Pro Series. Oh, well, you should have been talking to me about it. The, the original plan was that it would include Ireland as well and that it would be a six-team competition. Right. And Ireland decided to go their own way. And one of the things that immediately became clear as soon as the games between the Scottish sides and the and the Dutch sides started was that the Scots were taking it much more seriously even in terms of things like hit and equipment they turned up they looked like professional sides and to be honest the dutch did not and this was this was very obvious even with the tap funding the dutch sides were under-resourced there were problems of availability so you weren't you were never putting out your best available side and once as you say once the tap funding stopped the scots the Scots decided to go their own way, and and they now have a fully operational regional system with three teams um, playing 50-over and T20 cricket, and they've mirrored that with the women as well. So it's a much more highly developed operation in Scotland than the Netherlands has ever been able to achieve. Again, it's another podcast if we're going to talk about that. And it would involve some fairly hard truths, I think, about where it's gone wrong in the Netherlands and why it's gone wrong and why it's never been taken seriously 
because the gap between domestic club cricket and the full national side has been a a, a running sore, I think, for certainly 10 years. And it's good to see now that there are the beginnings of serious attention to an A-team for the players from the Pro Series who don't make it into the into the full side. And for the Pro Series, both of which are things which I know the current management take much more seriously than they've been taken in the past. Whether there's enough money to throw money at them is another question. You're right, the Pro Series needs sponsorship. Uh, it's sponsored by Fairtree at the moment, but it needs, it needs a big injection of money, as indeed does the A-team. Um, and given the levels of funding which are currently available and the levels of sponsorship which are currently available, neither of those things is going to happen at the level at which they need to happen if we are serious about the Netherlands continuing its onward development. Yeah, I, I guess that's a ongoing problem for well for most associates, but you know even the Netherlands. Um, I, just, I guess, looking back to the World Cup and how all the teams line up against the Netherlands, we said, you know, they could probably win one or two games. Yeah, obviously, you would think Afghanistan would be a target. They have beaten them in the past, uh, maybe a little while ago now. And, and obviously, Afghanistan's development has uh, come on in leaps and bounds. So uh, it, it's not the same team as when, you know, say the Netherlands were playing them back in 2010. But, you know, that that's still kind of the obvious target for a win. I kind of think, you know, Sri Lanka, yeah, they weren't a million miles off beating Sri Lanka at the qualifier. So that's that's not out of the realms of possibility either. And obviously they've beaten South Africa in the T20 format. So, you know, there's there's a few uh, a few possibilities there. Yeah, and, and Bangladesh. They should have beaten Bangladesh in the T20 last year. Mm, yes. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are there are possibilities. We know that winning against full members in 50 over competitions is a lot tougher than winning in T20 for all kinds of reasons. But yeah, I'm sure those are games which the management will be eyeing extremely carefully. It's a huge stretch. If you see the if you see the way in which India and Pakistan dominated them in the T20 in Australia last year, Australia likewise. I mean, those are huge, huge asks and probably have got tougher since the last time the Dutch were in the World Cup, which is 12 years ago now, isn't it? That said, they, they did have Pakistan in a spot of bother in the Super League. They just, as as you referred to earlier, with uh, you know with Scott Edwards saying they, they didn't take their opportunities and they you know they let them they let them off the hook. Same against New Zealand, actually. Yeah, I think yes, I think that's that's all that's all very true. And we're back to the point that you need to perform at one hundred and ten percent and hope that the opposition perform at seventy or eighty percent. Well, and and keep that level of performance throughout the whole game, rather than you know having a, a stretch where you're playing very well and then letting letting your foot off. Or bowling really well and then the batter's letting you down or batting really well and the bowler's yeah. letting you down. <laughs> I mean, certainly going back to the days of Peter Drennan, it was something that he and I used to talk about, the fact that he could get half a performance out of the side. Um, but to get 100% was much more difficult. And when you're playing against guys who hit balls every day, which was Peter Drennan's phrase, you know, playing against county sides, we're playing against guys who hit the ball, hit balls every day, either in matches or in the nets. And the Campbell-Cook regime has been moving towards more one-to-ones, more intensive practice, 
and and more attention to things like the running between the wickets, as you said earlier, which was one of the things which was absolutely distinctive of the side in the in the qualifier. And you kind of got to pick the areas. I guess this is this is the big Ryan Cook point. You got to pick the areas where you know you can not only compete with the big boys but actually outdo them. Yeah, and and that's. I guess that's something a lot of associate teams talk about, uh, certainly in relation to fielding, but you know, also things like running between wickets. You know, these are things that you can improve w- without playing regular cricket against you know top level opposition because it's it's something that's entirely within your control as a team, and that's um it, I guess that's something the Netherlands will have to be doing is is controlling. Controlling controllables, that's a, a phrase that um, uh, Joe Dawes used to like to use for, for PNG and, you know, <laughs> to, to varying degrees of success. But um, it, it, it was it was a mentality, I think, that uh, certainly served them well. And it's, it's something that, you know, the Netherlands will, will need to be doing as well if they're going to convert good positions into actual victories. Yeah, absolutely. We will be watching with great interest and our fingers crossed. Yes, we will indeed be watching and waiting uh, with great interest. Daniel Beswick will be in India, so he's going to be crossing paths with the Dutch, so uh, we might hear some updates from him. Bertus de Jong has applied. I, I don't know if his visa has been, <laughs> been processed yet, but uh, maybe we'll hear from him too. But uh, we will certainly be bringing you all the coverage of the Dutch team and their adventures in India through Emerging Cricket. So remember to follow Emerging Cricket on your favourite social media site and log on to the Emerging Cricket website. Rod Lyle, a pleasure as always. Thank you for going through the Dutch team at the World Cup. It is a pleasure. Um, and as we say, we shall be watching and supporting. Thanks again for listening and we appreciate all your support with the Emerging Cricket podcast.